All right. There are events that define each generation. Something happens, and everybody remembers where they were at that point when it happened, right? So for, for me, that was the, uh, the attacks on September 11th, right? So I can picture where I was standing outside of our double-wide trailer in Michigan when Jen opened the door and said, you got to come in and see what's going on on the news. We went in, we looked at our, we had this TV, was about this big, right? A long time ago, right? And uh, we were watching that, and like everybody in the nation now is watching this burning tower, they're listening to the, the conversation as the anchors are trying to figure out what in the world's going on. At that point, I think most of us assumed that some crazy guy or really bad pilot flew like a Cessna into it, maybe even on accident, right? But then you guys remember that moment, probably. The announcers are talking, and he doesn't even realize that the image behind him, there's another jet that comes across the screen and slams into that second tower, right? And he's got to be told later that that's what just happened. Like it, and it takes a while to process, like, how could this possibly have happened? What is going on here? Everything's shortened out in our brains, and we just don't know what, don't know what to do. That, that day uh, defines much of how my generation looks at the world. Is the world a, a safe place? Is it an orderly place? Are leaders to be trusted? Are, can the intelligence apparatus find out the things they need to find out in order to keep us safe? That, that rocked a lot of stuff in us. Today, in our sermon, we're going to look at another event that really defined an age that changed the direction of world history. After September 11th, Everybody in the United States knew the names of Osama bin Laden or the group Al-Qaeda. Before that, did any of us regular people know about these guys? Probably not so much. The moment that we're going to look at today in Scripture is a moment of violence, kind of like how September 11th was a moment of violence. And it will ensure that not only in the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel, but around the world... Some names will be known by most people. And this moment changes that direction. As we've been working through Acts, uh, we've now made it to the end of chapter 7, and we've been dealing with this general theme in Acts called called out and sent out. It's the idea that the church, the family of God, is called by Jesus out of the world and together as an extended family, we get our identity, our unity through our, our common faith in Christ. But not only are we called out and called together, but we're then sent back out into the world on mission. We've talked a couple of times about how Jesus gave us that great commission right before he ascends into heaven. Go into all the world, make disciples of him. He said, but wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. You saw how the the promised Holy Spirit was poured out on the believers. We now know that when someone comes to faith in Christ, the Spirit comes to dwell inside of them. The Spirit of God himself lives inside of all true Christians. And that was, that was the thing that they were supposed to be waiting for. But he came, he filled them, and they continued to wait. So we're, we're seven chapters in to this book now. 
and they're still waiting in Jerusalem. Now, they're growing really big. They're a mega church in Jerusalem, thousands and thousands of people, but they're hanging out in Jerusalem. What we look at today is the catalyst that changes that. It will force the church to leave the comfort of their hometown and go out into all the world. This call, not only call out of the world, but called back into the world, is a radical call. And today we're going to see a radical man die in a radical way. We've been looking at the sermon that Stephen has been preaching in his defense before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jewish nation. And uh, Scott talked to us last week, mentioned the tabernacle. I wanted to show you guys a picture of the tabernacle from the Exodus time. It was a tent, and the Ark of the Covenant was housed in there, and the priests would do their things there. Many years later, after you got King David and then his son Solomon, Solomon built the first temple to replace the tabernacle, and it would have looked something like this. Quite an upgrade from the tabernacle. And one of the things I really appreciated about Scott's sermon yesterday, or last week was that he, uh, he drew out this realization that God never told the Israelites to build the temple. He told them to build the tabernacle. He gave them all the dimensions and the materials and, and all the plans for that. But he didn't tell them to make it a permanent, impressive stone structure. Now, he allowed that to happen. He allowed it as a concession, just like he allowed as a concession for the Jewish people to have kings when that was not his intent, his plan, but he allowed it to happen. Now, this particular temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, and then a few years before Jesus comes on the scene, King Herod builds the second temple, which you guys have seen this illustration before. It's much bigger. If we zoom out to the next photo there, see... This is one of the rooms inside of Herod's temple. This is where the Sanhedrin met. So if you could picture the, the guy in the middle would be Stephen. He's surrounded by 71 of the smartest, most powerful, most respected dudes. They've been questioning him, accusing him of blasphemy against God, blasphemy against Moses and the writings of Moses, the law of Moses. And then he's been defending himself. And so far, he's just been given a history lesson. He talked about how, guys, remember, um, God was with our ancestor Abraham when he called him out and sent him to a new nation and promised to, to build him into what we are today. And, and God was with Jacob, and God was with Joseph when uh, the nation was taken into Egypt and grew in the incubator of Egypt to a great nation, then was enslaved. And then God was with Moses when he pulled the Israelites out of slavery and they wandered around in the desert forever. God was with them through all of that. God gave through Moses the law that you guys are accusing me of teaching against. He's, he's going through this whole thing. And last week we saw God was with King David and God was with Solomon in the, the building of the first temple, even though he hadn't actually instructed him do that. He was with him in it. This was part of what we read last week, Acts 7, 47. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my home, 
The earth is my footstool. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things, meaning all the universe? Stephen was quoting from the prophet Isaiah in that. And the other thing that really stood out to me in, in um, <coughs> excuse me, Scott's sermon last week was that he, he went back and he looked at that quote from Isaiah and he realized that Stephen didn't make it through the whole verse. And he, he gave this idea. He said, maybe, maybe Stephen got cut off. So if we go back to read Isaiah 66, it says this, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, <coughs> and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So at the end of the verse there, Isaiah says that <clears throat> it's the humble and contrite spirit that trembles before the word. Scott postulated, he said, maybe the, the rulers of Israel couldn't handle what they knew was coming, and they cut them off. Humility is a very rare thing. These leaders believe that they are fighting for God, standing for the truth of God, but we can see they're actually fighting against God. This is a frighteningly common thing. There have been times in my life where I thought I was fighting for God. I look back now and I think, I was working against God. Maybe you guys have had those same moments. Now, we don't, we don't know, but we do know what happens next. Stephen immediately changes gear. It's like he gets into his monster truck and he just starts running over his guys. Hey, thanks, Carmen. Wasn't bothering you, was it? Hey, look, there was one up here already. Thanks. All right. So I put this picture in there for Russell because it's a Dodge truck. I know he would appreciate that. So, so this is a picture actually taken in Jerusalem when Stephen changes direction in his sermon. This is what it, this is what it looked like. All right? Acts 7, 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. One guy whose job before this was simply to serve food to widows is now lecturing in a very strong tone the leaders of the nation of Israel. Stiff-necked people. That's offensive to anybody, but then he goes with this extra special Jewish flavored offensiveness. You're uncircumcised in heart and ears. And circumcision is supposed to be the, the physical sign that separates the Jewish males from all the rest of the population. He says, it's not about the physical so much, guys. It's, it's your heart. It's your soul. And you're not circumcised in your heart. If you, can't, you can't hear what God is trying to say to you. Your ears are broken 
spiritually, your heart is broken spiritually, and you're behaving like your fathers. Now, he's just named the heroes of the Jewish faith. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon. But when he says you're behaving like your fathers, he's not meaning it as a praise. See, the nation of Israel has a long track record of rejecting those whom God has placed an authority over them, of killing the prophets of God. Stephen is going to hit home more as he goes here. But what I want you to see is Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, is boldly speaking these words of prophetic truth against the people who are getting ready to kill him. He could have backed down. He could have said, I'm sorry, guys. I won't do it again. Instead, he goes guns blazing all in calls them to repent. Verse 52, which of the prophets did our fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. So it's not just all of those prophecies of judgment and correction and doom and all that stuff in the Old Testament. He's also saying, look, the prophets of the Old Testament, they were pointing to the righteous one, to Jesus who would come, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So your ancestors, they murdered the prophets. The one that the prophets spoke of coming, he came, you murdered him. Serious accusation. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He's accusing his accusers of the things that his accusers are accusing him of. He's on trial because he's been speaking against the law of Moses, they say. He's saying, you are disobeying the law of Moses, delivered by angels. Serious guts to do this. He's calling them hypocrites. He's saying, you're guilty of the very thing that you're accusing me of. I'm innocent. You're guilty. You are the lawbreakers and the murderers. As you can imagine, that didn't go over well. 54. Now they heard these things, and they were enraged, duh, and they ground their teeth at him. So I don't know if you've ever been so mad that you've realized you're grinding your teeth. Um, my jaw doesn't align, so it's basically impossible for me to grind my teeth well anyway. But, Joe, um, but Owen is really good at grinding his teeth. Um, yeah, <laughs> just thinking about it makes Jen tremble. When you're holding him and he's got his head like right by your ear and he starts grinding his teeth, it's like, oh, stop it. And you can tell him stop, but he can't calculate that you're telling him to stop that. And so he's like, this is a fun game. It makes noise in my head. He doesn't do it when he's angry, though. He just does it for fun. But these guys, they're so enraged. And you can see their face is red and eyes are swollen, fists are clenched, and they're just grinding their teeth back and forth, gnashing their teeth because they're so mad. How will Stephen respond to this grinding teeth anger? But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand 
of God. All right. We have here, in, these, in this, this single verse, we've got all three members of the Trinity present. Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit, we're told. He sees God the Father and God the Son standing next to each other in heaven. He refers to Jesus as the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself. It goes back to the Old Testament book of Daniel, where Daniel's prophesying about this coming Messiah, and he refers to him as someone like a son of man. And, and while we would think on the surface that means he's a human, which Jesus is human, but Jesus is also God. And the term son of man in the Jewish mindset was a divine label reserved for the Messiah. These guys have rejected Jesus. They say he's not the Messiah. And when Stephen says, I see in heaven, first of all, to, see, to claim to see the glory of God in that moment, they would think he's lost his mind or he's possessed by a demon or he's just trying to make him even matter. But then to say that I see the Son of Man, they know he means Jesus, I see the one that you murdered standing at the right hand of God the Father, meaning they're, they're at the, the same level, they're of the same substance, the same authority. He's saying Jesus is with the Father, especially when we see how Luke phrases it all, Holy Spirit, Father, and Son in the same verse. We are meant to understand this is Stephen claiming, proclaiming the divinity of Christ in these last moments before his death. So as, as mad as they were about the other stuff, and they're gnashing their teeth, they were still sort of under control. But now when he says this, I see the Son of Man at the right hand of the Father in glory in heaven, they can't take it. They cannot control themselves. This is so offensive to them. 57. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. They're covering, covering their ears so they can't hear him. And they're crying out with a loud voice, and they're running at him, rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So there's a little sentence in there introducing us to the guy named Saul, who's going to play the leading role through much of the rest of the book of Acts. At this point, we're simply told there's a guy there named Saul, He's keeping track of the coats while these enraged guys execute Stephen by stoning. This is a terrible way to die. Right? So they chuck him out of the gate, and then they're picking up rocks, whatever they can find, like the biggest, heaviest rock you can lift. Imagine a rock like this big, and you're chucking it down. Dozens of these guys. Bones are breaking. Bones are sticking through parts that are not supposed to stick through. So far, he's still got his head about him. He's going to have something he says, but then mercifully, a stone is eventually going to hit his head and put him out of his misery. 59. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, it wasn't until I was slowly working through Acts that it occurred to me that this death of Stephen is a very clear parallel to the death of Jesus. This is one of those parallels. Remember, Jesus is, is hanging on the cross, and he, he cries out 
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's almost the same thing that Stephen says here, except he's not addressing the Father, is he? He's addressing Jesus, the Son. Another claim, the divinity of Jesus. This smarty pants guy named Dr. Ben Witherington III, who he was a professor at Ashland Seminary, so we got some Ashland College grads right right there. And uh, so Ben was a professor there for a long time, and he looked at this passage and he said, there's at least 10 things that are a clear parallel between what happened to Stephen and what happened to Jesus. So consider these. They're both put on trial before the high priest and the Sanhedrin. They're both accused by false witnesses. Both Jesus and Stephen are done in by the testimony concerning their destruction of the temple claims. Both speak of a temple made with hands, not an earthly temple, I'm sorry, an earthly temple, in contrast with the heavenly temple. They both have the Son of Man sayings in their last few words. Jesus says that you will see the Son of Man coming, his second coming later. Stephen says that he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God the Father. Both are charged with blasphemy. Both are questioned directly by the high priest. Both commit their spirit to God, so Jesus to the Father, Stephen to the Son. They cry out with a loud shout near the end. And number 10, the last thing that they do is they intercede. They pray on behalf of their enemies. So in Luke 23, 34, Jesus is he's hanging on the cross. He's between the two guys that deserve to be there. And we read this. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they... Know not what they do. Not the two guys next to him, but the guys who hung him on the cross. Father, forgive my enemies who don't understand who they're killing and what they're doing. Stephen mirrors that just before he dies. Verse 60, back in Acts. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. What a remarkable way for someone to go. And the, the faith that it takes for a normal human being, a server of food, to, in his last breath, ask the Father to forgive those who are killing him. He is a remarkable man. And he dies in a remarkable way. Why did he have to die? They were mad about some things. They were mad that he was apparently discounting the value of the temple, saying it's going to be destroyed. He he wasn't as enthusiastic as they wanted him to be about the the history of Israel, even though he, he loves the history of Israel. They accused him of speaking against the, the, the main prophet, Moses, and the writings of Moses, right? And all these things made them mad. But what put them over the edge was the claim of the divinity and the lordship of Jesus. Now, this is true in our world today, too. You could go out into the world, for sales, or New York City, or Tokyo, or whatever, and, and you can make historical claims about Jesus, that he lived, that he died, that crazy people think he rose from the dead, that he was a teacher, that maybe he was even a miracle worker. He was certainly a good example to us. You can say that all over the world, and 
Some people may get mad about it, but mostly people are just going to say, that's nice. You believe whatever you want to believe. And if they write you off as crazy, at least they're not going to kill you for that, right? You can even claim that Jesus is Savior. You could meet a stranger on the street, and you could be talking about stuff, and you could say, can I, can I tell you about Jesus? Because he has saved me from my sins. I was lost as a sinner. He gave his life to rescue me. I, I came to faith in Christ and him, and now I know I'm going to spend eternity with God in heaven because what Jesus did for me, he is my Savior. You can say that to somebody, and they're probably not going to kill you. In our country, maybe they'll think, well, that's nice, and kind of pat you on the head, and well, you're not really that bad anyway. You didn't need a Savior. They'll come up with all kinds of things to think, maybe, to discount that, but they're probably not going to kill you in rage. What changed it for Stephen, though, was this claim of the reigning Lord Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. Now, if you go out into our world today and you insist that a man who was crucified 2,000 years ago is reigning from heaven over the universe with all authority, he makes the rules, we don't, you're going to start making some enemies. Say to the average person, look, you want to direct your own life however you want, you want to be in charge of your life, but there's someone who is rightfully Lord and ruler over you, and you should bow face to the ground before this Jesus. That's, that's offensive. Just as these guys raged at this and killed him for this declaration of the lordship, the reigning Jesus... If we live and declare that Jesus is Lord, it'll make some people mad. Probably not mad like these guys, but it'll make some people mad. Because it's a radical thing to say. It's a radical way to live. Well, I'm not really living all that radically, right? Well, that's true of us. We're, we're not radical like Stephen. We want to take Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Rescuer, Jesus as buddy, but when we think about Jesus as Lord, we're like, back off a little bit, slow down with that. I'll be, a, I'll be a little better than the rest of the world around me. I'll live a cleaner life, but I don't know about this whole Jesus as Lord thing, bowing with my face on the ground, submitting everything to him as the ruler of my life. That sounds a little too crazy. Back off. That's the, that's the default of our hearts, isn't it? It is of mine. Yet Stephen, here, he shows us a different way. Stephen's willing to give up, to lose his life in order to proclaim the lordship of Jesus. Pray for his enemies while they're killing him. As I was thinking through this passage, I was, I was really challenged so much like those religious leader guys. Whether it's the word of God directly or somebody you know, sharing wisdom with me as a Christian brother or sister, if I don't like what they're saying, I just want to stop my ears and, and run at them in a snarling, teeth-grinding way and try to scare them off, right? I don't like to be confronted with the fact that I am not Lord of my life. I may be going in this direction, and Jesus is calling me in this direction, and, and I, I don't want to hear that stuff. 
I'm so much like those guys in the Sanhedrin, and so unlike Stephen. Wouldn't it be amazing if, if God would change us as a congregation into people who are like Stephen? And we're praying for our enemies, and we're boldly proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is and his right to rule over everything, including the smallest details of our lives. If we were living and proclaiming that in a consistent way, that would be amazing to me. The church in Acts is about to explode unwillingly out into the world. That Saul guy is going to ravage church. The Christians are going to flee. They're going to do the thing that Jesus asked them to do. Go into the world and tell everybody about him. It took this radical death of Stephen to ignite the fuse that blew up the Jerusalem church and sent them out. May we be a church that goes out without having to be exploded first. Father, thanks for these words and acts, and uh, Lord, they're just, they're uh, challenging, they're, they're beautiful uh, to think of somebody living and giving up his life that way, just a regular person dying as such a hero of the faith, and Lord, we uh, recognize that we're pretty far from that, but we want to be that kind of man or woman, we, we want to be radically committed to you and submitted to your lordship. We want you to, to saturate us as individuals and families and as a church. And We want to be so different than the world, and yet we want to be like the world too. Lord, please work in us. Tear down the, the walls that we've put around our heart that prevent us from yielding more fully to you. Humble us. Show, us. show us our weakness. Show us your strength. Show us our foolishness. Show us your wisdom. Lord, I pray that you'd work in the hearts and the minds of each person in this room, that, that they would be taking steps towards greater surrender to you today. And I thank you, Lord, that we do that not to gain forgiveness or acceptance get a ticket to heaven, but we do it in thankfulness and out of respect and gratitude for what you've done for us. So we close out the service today singing a song that reminds us that it is your work alone, Jesus, that rescues us. It is our faith in you that we rely on, not in our performance and our ability to be more like this radical Stephen, Lord, but you have loved us, you've given us all that we need, even despite us. In Jesus' name.